for this particular sermon than the hymn that we've just sung. And whoever chose the hymn, I'm very glad that you chose this particular hymn. I'd like you to turn, please, to Hebrews chapter 9. I'd like to read just a part of a verse from Hebrews chapter 9. But while you're turning there, let me ask a question. What do you find to be the most attractive aspects of Christianity? What do you find to be the most attractive aspects of Christianity? Perhaps some of you are not Christians, but you're here. What is it that is attractive to you about Christianity? Some of you children, you're here, you watch your parents, you've perhaps been raised in Sunday school, you know a lot about Christianity. What is the most attractive aspect to Christianity to you? Some of you older Christians, you've pondered the gospel for a long time. What do you find to be the most attractive aspects of Christianity? Well, there are a lot, aren't there? Our minds perhaps go first to the forgiveness of sins, that we who have been so very sinful that we can be absolutely forgiven, absolutely pardoned, absolutely justified, treated as if we have not sinned at all. Or your mind may go to the privilege of communion with God, that we can actually fellowship with God, walk with God, relate to God, know God in ways the mystics have never anticipated. Or it may be that, you're fi- that you find it attractive that at the end of the age, the Lord Jesus Christ will return, justice will be established, wrongs will be made right, He will be vindicated, His people will be vindicated. I would like to draw your minds this morning to another of the most attractive aspects of Christianity, and that is to draw our minds this morning to what Jesus Christ is presently doing for His people. Not so much what He did do, although how could we think of anything more grand, but not so much what He did do, but what is He presently doing for His people? Now, this text that I've asked you to turn to, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, is in a rather complicated context, and I'm not going to ask us to even consider that context at the moment, but just look at the verse, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now... And for this reading, I'm underscoring now. Now, to appear in the presence of God for us. What's true now? Jesus Christ is appearing, manifesting Himself, displaying Himself, making Himself obvious. He is appearing in the presence of God for us. Now, what is He doing there? He's in the presence of God. He's there for us. What is He doing there for us? The us in the passage is those who love Him. The the us in the passage is those who have come to God through Him. What is He doing for us? Well, if we limit ourselves to the book of Hebrews, which I'd like to do for this sermon, if we limit ourselves to the book of Hebrews, you'll see that the writer emphasizes three postures Three postures which are really pictures of what Jesus is presently doing before His Father for us. He's doing three things. He is sitting for us in the presence of God. He is interceding for us 
in the presence of God, and he is sympathizing with us in the presence of God. He's sitting for us, he's interceding for us, and he's sympathizing with us in the presence of God. Now, these three ideas overlap in many ways, but they're set forth in the book of Hebrews as distinct ideas, and so I'd like us to look at them as distinct ideas, and we'll quickly appreciate how they do overlap with one another. But before we actually look at these three, there's a little bit of background that it's important for us to appreciate about the book of Hebrews if we're really going to understand any of these passages. The first is that this book was written shortly after the great historical works of Jesus have been accomplished. This book was written in about 65 A.D., so maybe 30 years, somewhere between 30 and 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This book asserts and assumes these great works of Jesus. It assumes. It assumes the incarnation. The book assumes and it asserts the incarnation. That the eternal Son became incarnate in Mary's womb, the child Jesus, both God and both man. This This book asserts and assumes that. It asserts and assumes that Jesus lived on the earth for 30 plus years, and while he lived upon the earth, he taught and he taught and he taught. He taught by words, he taught by sermons, he taught by private conversations, he taught by his example, he taught about God, he taught about sin, he taught about forgiveness, he taught about ethics, he taught about how to live, he taught about how to be blessed and how to be cursed, and he demonstrated that he himself was the eternal Son of God and invited people to come to him, come, 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 and he would give them rest and he would forgive their sins. But he did something else during all of those years, he learned, he learned and he learned and he learned He learned about us. He learned about the human condition. He learned about human beings. He learned about us and our weaknesses. He learned so perfectly what it's like to live in a sinful world, what it's like for human beings to live in a sinful world, that the Bible says he was tempted in all the ways that we have been tempted, and the effect was that he became profoundly sympathetic with us. So the incarnation, the life, the ministry, the sympathies of Jesus are assumed and asserted in this book. His death is assumed and asserted that he died upon the cross. His resurrection is assumed and asserted, and not only his resurrection, but that he's currently living to do things after the resurrection. Now, this all lies as an assumption in this book. There's another thing to understand before we go any further, and that is that, according to this book, the Old Testament sacrificial system was designed to be a model. The Old Testament sacrificial system was designed to be a model to teach us about the redemptive work of Jesus. If you, were an, if you were a city planner, an architect, and you were responsible to make a presentation about your ideas for the renovation of, of Winston-Salem downtown, what might you do? You'd have your ideas, you'd have your architectural firms give it. You, would, you might create a model. You might create a model that was perhaps large enough to be on that table. And in that model, you'd have little miniature buildings and streets and perhaps the river and different things. You'd have a model, and you could use that model to teach about this great plan that you'd like to be adopted in Winston-Salem. Well, the Old Testament sacrificial system is like that. It's a model that's set forth to be used for us to understand the redemptive work of Jesus. Now, the problem for us is that most of us find that we we don't know that Old Testament material. Most of us are not very well versed. We don't really know what the Holy of Holies is, what the Ark is, what the various things are that were very commonplace in the Old Testament Scriptures. But that background is what's asserted and assumed all throughout this book. So you and I might come and read it, and we're sort of scratching our heads. What does this mean, and what does that mean? Well, it's for us to learn what that means. But don't be 
Don't be put off. Don't be, by put, don't be put off by the, odd th- by the things that seem odd to you when you're reading this. Give a little more work, a little more effort. You'll, you'll get it. And then you'll see how that Old Testament background really is a model. It really does help illumine to us what Jesus has actually done. Well, with that as background, I want you to consider these three postures, these three pictures of the Lord Jesus. The first is that Jesus is sitting in the presence of God for us. I'd first like you to see how prominent this is in the book of Hebrews. It's repeated several times, and it's stated in some of the most important contexts of the book of Hebrews. I'm going to ask you to, to open your Bibles or open your device. I'd like you to look at some of these passages with me. We're going to look quickly at four passages in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, this great introduction to the book of Hebrews. Referring to Jesus, it says in verse 3, who being the brightness of his Father's glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When he had purged our sins, he sat down. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, this is the main point. You read something like that, it should, your, your ears should perk up, you're going to get something special here. This is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Again, it's a complex context, and you have to know some of that Old Testament background to really, to really enjoy this passage. But this, he... he He underscores three or four times, and he gives you highlights. This is the main point. Don't miss this, that we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in in heavens. Look at chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 12. But this man, some of your translations may actually have the name Christ there. But this man... After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. This man sat down at the right hand of God. And one more verse in chapter 12 and verse 2. And this is one perhaps all of you could quote or many of you could quote. Chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right at, at the throne of God. Now, this is a prominent theme in the book of Hebrews. Drawing on that Old Testament model, this is prominent in the presentation that the writer makes. He has sat down, he has sat down, he has sat down, he has sat down. Now, what, that's the prominence. What is the meaning of this? What, what, is, what is conveyed to us by this posture? Well, the writer is making a contrast He's emphasizing sat down, sat down, sat down, sat down to make a contrast. It's to make a contrast with Jesus Christ who's finished and he sits down, finished, as opposed to the old covenant priests who are never finished and they're always standing, 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 standing because their work is never finished. They're involved in a model. They're involved in symbols. They're involved in 
in something that isn't real, something that's educational, but something that doesn't actually atone. Those sacrifices that they offered were not actually effectual, so they offered again and again and again and again. Now, it would be, I hope, edifying to actually go back through these passages that I just read and for you to appreciate their context. It's after He has purged our sins that He sits down. But we're not going to go back to all of them, but I would like you to look at two. Look at chapter 9, our text, chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And now the writer says what he's not doing there. He, has a, he is now in the presence of God for us, verse 25, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enter the most holy place every year with the blood of, the, of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 28, so Christ was also offered once to bear the sins of many, To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin unto salvation. What's he not doing? Jesus is in heaven not offering any more sacrifices. Why is he not offering any more sacrifices? Because the one sacrifice that he offered, the one, is so permanently, powerfully, universally effective, there is no place for any other, even by himself. He is not now offering any more sacrifices. And the contrast is is most pointedly brought out in chapter 10, and we'll just sort of dip into the context in chapter 10. Look Look at chapter 10 and verse 10. This is a reference to God's will in the new covenant. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, and every priest, now the writer is going back to the model of the priest's the Old Testament priest, every priest stands, appreciate the stands, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are to be made his footstool. Verse 14 For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And notice how the passage ends in verse 18. Now where there is remission of these, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. What's the point? The point is you have this model of the old covenant priests standing, 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 ever ready. Some of the sacrifices were offered every year. Some of the sacrifices were offered every day, morning and evening, and some sacrifices were offered whenever a godly Israelite felt a sense of guilt and wanted to come and offer a sacrifice. These guys, these priests, they were working, working, working. You imagine a day in the life of the priests in the tabernacle or in the temple yard. All these animals having to be killed, all these animals, their blood having to be poured out, all the, all the effort, all the, they were never finished because none of these were effectual. They were all symbols. They were all to teach something, but they weren't actually effective. And here this this one comes, the Son of God comes, and He's both priest and sacrifice. 
and he offers himself. He offers himself once. And in that one offering, all the sins of the world, all the sins of his people are laid upon him. And all the wrath of God and anger of God for those sins, that is also poured upon him. And God is satisfied and justice is satisfied and there's just nothing else to do. There is nothing else that any person, even the Lord himself, would or could ever do to more fully expiate our sins. This one sacrifice has done it all. And that's what we're to think of when we think of Jesus being seated in heaven. And when we engage in life, and when we think about the Lord, and we bring ideas about the Lord to our minds, one of the first things, one of the primary things that should be in our mind is that he has finished that sacrifice. There is absolutely nothing that you can do. There is nothing that anybody who loves you can do. There is nothing more to be done for the forgiveness of your sins. There is nothing more to propitiate God. There is nothing more to turn the anger of God away from you than what the Lord Jesus Christ has already done. And the Bible wants us to think of him as sitting in the presence of God for us. Sitting in reference to offering sacrifice. Sitting in reference to doing anything to atone. That is finished. And so all of our, all of our thinking, all of our faith, when we, when we are looking for any foundation for the forgiveness of our sins, it's to be to this one thing, he is sitting. That sacrifice, that historical sacrifice has been offered. The effects are being worked out yet, but he is sitting. The second, <clears throat> the second picture that the book of Hebrews gives us is that Jesus Christ is interceding for us in the presence of God. That Jesus Christ is interceding for us in the presence of God. And I'd like you to read Hebrews chapter 7 with me, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24. The writer is using that Old Testament model again. In contrast to that Old Testament model where the priest would die, imagine having a priest that was sympathetic to you and that you trusted and that you went and you offered your sacrifices and he helped you do that and you trusted him. He dies. These priests are always dying. Well, it's in contrast to that, you have in chapter 7, verse 23, and they were many priests because they were pre prevented <clears throat> by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you think only of Jesus being seated, you might think the picture of, uh, is of him being inactive. Well, that's not the picture that we're supposed to have. Now we have a picture of him ever, constantly, ever living to ever make intercessions for his people. <clears throat> I'm almost embarrassed to, to acknowledge to you that I had been a Christian really several years before the idea of Jesus' present intercessions was very significant to me. It was never something that I would have denied, but its significance just was lost to me. My wife and I both heard a very powerful sermon from Romans chapter 8 regarding Christ's intercession. It opened our minds to things that had always been there. 
but they became very special to us. And perhaps it might be some of you like that. This is a wonderful text to consider. What does it mean? What is the meaning of this term intercession that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us? Well, the term literally means to to ask for something with urgency. And intercession is where you're pleading, begging, beseeching, petitioning, asking for something with urgency. The context in the book of Hebrews suggests that, that Jesus is making appeals to His Father, appeals for us, appeals for us that are based on His finished work, what we've just been talking about, appeals to us, to His Father that are based on His finished work, but it is appeals. There are some who think that what this means is more limited, that it would refer to the fact that Jesus is before His heavenly Father, He is there as the Lamb slain, and just being there is a reminder to the Father of the great thing that Christ has done, therefore the Father continues to be reconciled to us. Whatever element of truth there might be in that, there is something more here. There is the picture of making requests for us, not simply Him being there as the propitiation for our sins, not simply as Him being a reminder but of Him actually making requests, actually making intercessions, petitions for us. He exerts Himself in, the, in terms of making requests to His Father to ensure that we continue to be saved. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 2, where there is reference made to His ability to help. In Hebrews chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, <clears throat> verse 17 Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those or to help those or to succor those who are being tempted." I trust the meaning of this passage rather lies on its surface. He became incarnate. He suffered various sufferings and trials so that he would become a what? A merciful and a faithful high priest. His being so steady, his being so faithful, his being so merciful is not here attributed to his divine character, although you you can imagine that that you, you could trust that. But His faithfulness, His tenderness, His mercy is here attributed to His humanity, what He experienced. He became something so that He could be a merciful and faithful high priest, so that He would pity us, so that He'd be faithful and keep going for us. And what was the goal, according to this passage, that He could help us, that He could give us succor, that He could give us help, that He could give us aid? Well, that's the point of this passage back in Hebrews chapter 7. With that disposition of being able to give us aid, of wanting to give us aid, the Lord Jesus is pictured as making intercessions on our behalf to His Father and our Father. What is the effect of this? Let me back up a minute. Uh, Writers, people who write or preach on this passage have often said we should turn to John 17 for an illustration of the very kinds of things that Jesus is interceding, the very things that Jesus is asking the Father for. Because in that text, which will come up in your 
regular exposition of the Gospel of John in the future, in that text, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is praying for His disciples to His Father. That text in John chapter 17 has often been referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And the assumption is that those things that He prayed on the night when He was betrayed, just before He was killed, those things that He prayed then, Him being the same yesterday and today and forever, are the very same things that He is, that he is asking His Father for now. Well, when you come to the John 17 passage, pay a special attention to what that may mean that He's praying these things for you now. In that text in, verse, in chapter 17, verse 11, He asked the Father to keep them through the Father's name. In verse 13, He asked that, that His joy would be fulfilled in them. In verse 15, He asked the Father to keep them from the evil one. In verse 17, He asked the Father to sanctify them through His truth. In verse 21, he asked that they would all be one, united to each other and united to God. In verse 24, he said, I desire that where I am, they would be with me and behold my glory. He prays that they, his disciples, would be caught up in the love of God and that they would be caught up in the same love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father, that the disciples would be caught up in that love. Well, I think we can be assured that those are the very same things that that he's interceding on our behalf for now, praying for our sanctification, praying for our preservation, praying for our joy, praying for our unity, praying for our love. Now, the best part, perhaps, of this text in chapter 7, verse 25, is the effect of these intercessions. What is the effect, according to that text? It is that they would be saved to the uttermost, that all those who come to God through Him, that everyone who wants to be reconciled to God, that everyone who wants to be right with God, everyone who comes to God through Christ, the effect of his intercessions is that each one of them is saved completely. The, old, the older translation that I'm using says saved, that they would be saved to the uttermost. And the Greek word has like a double dimension, so the uttermost, the uttermost in terms of time, save forever. Uttermost in terms of degree, save completely. That whatever our sins are, whatever the things that we're still ashamed of, He is so interceding for us to be sure that we'll be completely, wholly saved. And that we will be saved to the uttermost in terms of time. That's the effect of Jesus' intercessions. He ever lives to make intercessions for those who come to God through Him to ensure that they will be saved to the end. Those of you who are Christians, I don't need to tell you that we live in a sea of temptations and trials and weaknesses that would destroy our faith and lead us to abandon Christ in discouragement if it were not for His intercessions. Temptations, trials, weaknesses, our inconsistencies, failures, disloyalties, love of self, allurements of the world, difficulties associated with our sins, difficulties associated with the sins of those that are around us, difficulties of sins that are aggravated throughout the societal buildup of sins. In light of our failures and inconsistencies, especially at our worst moments, how would we ever hope to persevere? We would not persevere if it were not for the ongoing effectiveness of the intercessions of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, it may be that some of you have been Christians a very short time, and you think, I would never abandon Christ. And it's only because you don't yet know yourself very well. Because each one of us who knows himself knows that there are enough sins within our hearts and there are enough agitations to sin around us that if we were left to ourselves, we would not persevere. And it might not be that we would depart from Christ with a high hand and a clenched fist and an arrogant face. We'd probably depart from Him dull and ashamed and shrinking. But we would depart from Him because of our remaining sins if it were not for His intercessions. And surely that has to be considered as one of the best parts of the gospel. There is forgiveness. Christ has done the great thing, and He's seated with His session to declare in the loudest possible way, it's done. There's nothing more to do. And in addition to that, He's always thinking of us. He's always interceding for us to be sure, to make sure that we are saved to the uttermost. You remember how Peter was so bold and Peter thought he would never, ever abandon Christ. And then he did abandon Christ. And he cursed and he made as clear as words could make it clear that he had nothing to do with Christ. What made Peter different from Judas? It was Jesus. I have prayed for you, Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And so Peter actually went through the forms of apostasy with his words, but he didn't leave the faith because Christ had made intercessions for him that his faith would not fail. Some of you can look at your own history and you can remember times where you almost fell off the way. Why did you not? Why did you fall off so far and came back? Because Christ has been faithful to you and he has been faithful to his promises and he has interceded for you and he is saving you fully. The third picture is that Jesus sympathizes with us in the presence of God. The text is Hebrews chapter 4. I think it was a year ago that we looked together at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 through 16, and this is meant to just be a snatch into this passage, so we're not going to go over all the things that we considered then. But I want you to look at chapter 3, verse 14, and I want you to think of the facts that the writer asserts in this text, and then the effect that he wants these facts to have upon us. Verse 14, seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Facts asserted. In the present, we have a great high priest. In the past, who has passed through the heavens. In the past, he has been tempted in all points like as we are. In the present, 
It's impossible for him not to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. In the past, he was tempted in all the ways that we are. In the present, he is so conditioned by his incarnation, he is still so conditioned by his incarnation that it is not possible for him to be unsympathetic. It is not possible for him to be indifferent to our weaknesses. Now, those are the facts that are asserted in this passage. You trace over the life of Jesus and you appreciate that he didn't experience everything that human beings have ever experienced. But at the kernel of those experiences, he did. He experienced hatred and loneliness and rejection. He experienced sorrows of almost every kind. He experienced disloyalty and false accusations. He experienced demonic opposition. He experienced the disloyalty of friends. He experienced the hatred of his enemies. He experienced alienation from God while he was upon the cross. He experienced what it was like to be distant, cut off. He experienced what it was like to be ashamed of sin when he bore our sin. He has experienced all of that. He's very touched with tiredness and exhaustion and human weakness. Very touched by that because he he experienced that. And the point of this passage is we're supposed to think of him that way. We're supposed to think of him as this great high priest who has done all the great work and has passed through the heavens. He was so affected that he is presently affected. And what's that supposed to do? The effect of that is the effect is that we're supposed to hold on. We're supposed to be encouraged by this. We're supposed to hold on to our confession of faith. And and when we are actually in times of need and we need to go to God, we're to go to God with hope. We're to go to God with confidence. We're to have this awareness that in the chamber where we meet with God, Christ is there. And Christ is fully sympathetic to us. That's to encourage us, according to this text, to come to God in our prayers with hope, with confidence, with a kind of, the word bold almost seems to be too strong, but boldness. We're to come with this confident hope that God is reconciled to us, that Jesus Christ is understanding us and sympathetic with us. We're supposed to come with this hope that in that chamber with God is someone who is not our critic, but somebody who really is sympathetic with the things that discourage us, sympathetic with our weaknesses. So, how are we to think of Christ in His present activity? We're to think of Him as sitting, as sitting and representing His once-for-all atoning sacrifice as finished. We're to think of Him as interceding and obtaining grace for us to ensure that we are saved to the uttermost. And we're to think of Him as sympathizing with us so that we may be encouraged in our weaknesses. He accompanies us, as it were, into the very presence of God. He, it's not that He accompanies He's there. He's waiting for us in the very presence of God. And when we go, we're to go with that hope. I just, I just in, these, in these minutes to close... I'd like to draw your mind to what I hope is obvious. It just needs to be underscored perhaps at the end. The primary point of this is that we, we should think of Jesus like this always. Of course we should think of him 
as he lived upon the earth. And of course we should think upon his, the agonies of the cross. And of course we should be cross-centered people. Of course, of course, of course. But we should think of Jesus as in heaven, in the presence of God for us. These pictures, postures, which are in the book of Hebrews are meant to be prominent in our minds. We're supposed to think of him as seated. We're to think of him as interceding. We're to think of him as sympathizing with us. The practical benefits to that cannot be overestimated. One of the points of application, of course, would be that these things are true regardless of how you feel. These things are just true regardless of how you feel. We are very much affected by how we feel. We're very much affected by our moods. We're very much affected by what we bring to our minds or what spontaneously comes to our minds. We're very much affected by our moods. And we may see all things out of kilter because of our moods. This doesn't have anything to do with our moods. Jesus is these things, whether it excites us or whether we'll dull to it. He is seated in the presence of God. He is interceding for us. He is sympathetic with us, regardless of how we feel about that. And so we may be in circumstances where we are very dull, very cold to God and very cold to the Lord Jesus. This is still true. And it's for us to put our minds there. It's for us to put our mind on the fact that it doesn't, it's really, Christian experience is not supposed to be dominated by our moods. There's something that's objective and fixed and real and true, regardless of how you feel. And one of those things is that the atonement is done. That Jesus is interceding for you to ensure that you're saved. And he's very sympathetic to whatever your weaknesses are. And so we should think of Jesus like this every time we pray. We should think of Jesus like this every time we are ashamed of our sins. We should think of Jesus like this whenever we're afraid that this may be a step too far. That this inconsistency, this repetition of besetting sin just may be too much. and There may be no more mercy. We're to think of the Lord Jesus like this. We're to think of Jesus like this when we are distressed by confusing circumstances. We're to think of Jesus like this when we don't know what to do. The book of Hebrews was written for struggling people. The book of Hebrews was written by an author who had some concern that some of these people might fall away. So what are they supposed to do? Those people who read the book of Hebrews initially. Well, they should be very careful about their sins to be sure. But they should, he says, the writer says, they should consider the apostle and the high priest of their confession, Jesus Christ. They should remember that they have a high priest who has passed through the heavens and who cannot help but sympathize with their weaknesses. They should remember that Jesus Christ ever lives to make intercessions for them and they will be saved, therefore, to the uttermost. They should remember that Jesus Christ is now in the presence of God for them. They should run their race. What? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith, who for the joy that was set before him, despising the cross, despising the shame, endured the cross, and is now seated at the right hand of God. That's that's the way we're supposed to run our race. Seeing him, seeing him, seeing him. 
Some of you may be familiar with David's statement in Psalm 16:8, I have always set the Lord before my face. I have always set the Lord before my face because is at my right hand I shall not be moved. Well, we have a better picture than David had. This is the picture that we should always set before our face. And the reality of the picture is what will keep us and take us to heaven. I have trying, I've been trying, I'd like to speak to some of you who are not Christians, I have been trying for the sake of the people of God to illustrate one of the most attractive features of the Christian gospel. And I'm happy to be able to say to you who are not Christians, this can all be for you. This can all be for you. You can come to God through Jesus Christ. You can acknowledge Him to be the Son of God and give your life up to Him. And then you can see Him this way as someone who is in the presence of God for you, having finished atonement for you, interceding for you, being sympathetic with you. I can commend nothing more bright to you than that. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the the teachings of the Bible. We thank you that you are pleased to set our minds right through the teachings of the Scriptures. We are ashamed, some of us are ashamed at where our minds actually go when they are untethered from your word. The things that cause us to fear, the things that cause us to doubt, the things that overwhelm us. But then you set our mind right, and we pray that you would help us to see your son as you have presented him in the Bible. That you would help us to appreciate his work upon the cross and his present ministry in heaven that we would love him and rely upon him and be close to him and thus to be close to you and to the Holy Spirit. Please make these truths of the gospel to be wonderfully efficacious to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.